Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 21, Reading is Fundamental. Let's get this show on the road. So season seven has picked up. We're fast tracking onto the like Leviathan train. Like last week's episode with Charlie kind of like reignited. That is like our main point. And here we have clearly followed up. We finally get, um, does he have a name? Leviathan who got crushed by a car and is kind of like Dick's like Lieutenant. Oscar. Oscar. Okay. He has a name. Could not have told you that. I feel like none of the Leviathans have names that like stuck other than Dick. Dick does stick out. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad I led you that way. Would you like to give us a recap for this week? Sure, count me down. All right, three, two, one, Dick. Uh, we open the episode on the mysterious object that I'm excited to know more about. Uh, and like I said, I, I was right. It was a thing to be opened and it's a weird tablet. And upon opening it, as they're opening it, lightning is just like, and thunder is just everywhere. It's like, oh, I'm clearly causing this. This is bad. Uh, the lightning strikes this poor student, child, adorable little kid who is now forever sworn to protect the word of God, the tablet in here. We go back to see Cass, who is like doing weirdly fine. Like there's definitely something going on there, but he's not like suffering the way I kind of expected him to, or I think any of us did. Kevin shows up, steals the word, can magically put it back together even though it's broken. Turns out he can read like a text that only God or, and, and the Metatron can write. Leviathans show up, angels show up. It's a mess. He thinks he's safe. He's not. Cass is kind of with them again, but kind of not. But they're on the road with Meg again now. And they at least know that they have this text about Leviathans that might be a way to stop them. And time. I love how you said the Metatron. Like, this is absolutely hilarious to me for so many reasons. I mean, for me, the Metatron is just... The Metatron? <laughs> I feel like it's a title, at least, when, I, when I've heard it outside of the context of the show. Oh, okay. All right. Is it not? Is it his name? Well, in this universe anyway, like in this supernatural story, like Metatron is a, and an, he's the scribe of God, right? Where I know the term Metatron from, besides like, I know it's a biblically t- biblical term. I know it as a character from um, the movie Dogma. Uh, and he is portrayed by, and I'm having a total moment here where I can't think of the actor's name, so I'm pulling it up real quick. By Alan Rickman. Oh, and yeah, I guess he's he's described in the cast as playing Metatron. So I guess it, it is the name. I don't know why I assumed it was a title for some reason. But I love it. And I feel like we should keep the Metatron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm now just picturing Alan Rickman again every time it comes up. And like, it's one of the most amazing roles. If you haven't seen it, Dogma's a bit of an odd movie. But like his role in that movie, he is his ultimate acting role, in my opinion. All right. Well, this episode was written by Ben Edlund and directed by Ben Edlund. And this and The Man Who Would Be King are the only two episodes that are written and directed by Mr. Ben Edlund. For how much we get of Cass and some like Cass and Dean alone time in this episode, and I think just the evolution of Cass in this episode, this kind of, I don't want to say new persona, but like this new take on life he has. I am very happy that it's coming from the same genius that brought us the man who would be king the way he did. 
We meet Kevin Tran in this episode. He's an outstanding high school student who dreams and works really hard to be admitted into Princeton. Immediately love him. I don't know what it is about him. There's just like this, like, I want to hold him and tell him everything's going to be okay and pet him energy. <laughs> yes. He's, he's very puppy dog. He truly is. What is happening? Poor baby. <laughs> The episode opens with Sam and Dean trying to figure out what the heck is in the big rock that they stole from Dick Roman. And when they break into it, Kevin is hit by lightning and Cass wakes up. Oh, right. I forgot. That's actually the moment that kind of wakes up Cass. He, he makes reference to it, but I forget that's kind of the moment that like kicks him in the rear of like being active again. Yep. To quote Meg, Cass is a little different than before. He's talking about honeybees and the root of flowers and the plan. Cass is just magical. Like, again, this is just a Misha Collins, like, appreciation moment. That man's range. Like, God. Absolutely. We also get the iconic Megatron exchange, which never fails to make me chuckle. The entire exchange, like, again, doing a bit during story time, but, like, to really nag on it here. I like the fact that, like, <laughs> Sam knows, like, he mistakes it for a Transformer. But then here's Megatron and is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, he knows the Transformer, but not well enough to understand the mistake he's made. But then Dean in his nerdiness. And again, this aired in 2012. Yeah, the first Michael Bay movies would have been out at this point. But I still choose to believe that Dean was definitely the kid who grew up watching Transformers like I did. And like, definitely saw the cartoons and the queer undertones they had in there. We're also introduced to Metatron, or the Metatron, as we will henceforth be calling him, who is the scribe of God. Because I have this association of Alan Rickman portraying Metatron in this other film, I'm curious to know who they're going to cast here and to see what kind of energy they bring and if, like, it, how it's done. Like, I, it's a weird thing to have, like, a fictional character, like, portrayed so iconically by somebody, then have someone else come in and do it and see, like, how it affects my view of the character. I am so excited for your reaction to this, actually. I'm not going to lie. Uh-oh. I'm, I'm very excited. We find out that Kevin is actually a prophet who can read what's on the tablet that was in the rock that the brothers stole from Dick Roman. Okay, this, I think, was very interesting, specifically because I think when the term prophet is dropped, Sam and Dean's reaction to it is very visceral because they still believe that Chuck is a prophet. Yes, exactly. And they're like, oh, crap, not another one. <laughs> oh. It's one of those things where it's like, it can be so easily overlooked. I feel like it wasn't very apparent that that's a thing. And again, the advantage of us doing the show the way we do it, we're kind of always looking for those things. I feel like it's the kind of thing where it's like, it's not made up immediately apparent, but makes me feel like we might get a return to Chuck soon. Mm, we shall see. We get a ton of really iconic lines in this episode, and I'm just going to go through them quickly. We've got Kevin's like, what is happening? Uh, we've got Cass that says, I watch the bees. We've got Dean saying, you're not sorry, you're playing sorry. Hester saying, the very touch of you corrupts. When Cassiel first laid a hand on you in hell, he was lost. And she also says, you have fallen in every way imaginable. And Cass also says, you know me, ha always happy to bleed for the Winchesters. You know what, I, I feel like I usually get a little bummed when we get introduced to a character and they're taken away so soon with Hestia, or Hester. I, I think she played her role well. I think she did what she needed to do, and I don't think I'm upset we, like, I'm upset we lost a potential good character, but, like, I think she did a really good job at everything, and, like, 
getting rid of her after that line, I think almost adds more punctuation to it. Because we then see the group, what Cass has chosen to surround himself with after, you know, falling. Definitely. And the episode ends with Kevin being found by the Leviathan. This is also the first time we see, like, direct Leviathan on Angel combat. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it ever really occurred to me because the only experience we had before was Cass being exploded but surviving. But yeah, seeing how inconsequentially simple it was for a single Leviathan to destroy two angels with his bare hands is kind of fucking terrifying. And I'm very... I'm even more so intrigued to know where the hell this goes. We will get answers about that. (laughs) Good. This week, our theme is sorrow. And this is actually a word with a Germanic root that means grief, regret, trouble, care, pain, anxiety. And we see so much of that in this episode, like through the really difficult reunion between Dean and Cass, the discovery of the word of God, and also like the beginning to Kevin's storyline. I just wanted to give like a more current definition of sorrow, which means like deep distress, sadness, or regret, especially for the loss of someone or something. So it is associated with grief. Very logical for this episode. And I do like that you kind of put uh, that more modern take on it with the, you know, the loss of someone or something loved. And I also, because we're going to get into it a bit, that it doesn't necessarily mean the loss of someone in the sense of they have died, but in the, like, the connection to them or your perception of them even. So do you want to talk to me about Sam a little bit? I mean, Sam is distraught in this episode. And there's like a few reasons why I think and also a few ways that we kind of see that come through. And I think that like one of the ways that we see his emotions or especially his sorrow, I guess, come through is the Megatron exchange, um, which like beyond being like objectively hilarious, like let's be very (laughs) clear, it's also very illuminating as to like where the brothers are mentally. So like Cass mentions that the tablet has Metatron's handwriting on it and Sam goes, are you saying a Transformer wrote that? To which Dean replies, that's Megatron. And Sam, and I don't know why, like, he just has, like, the most aggressive, like, what? That I've ever heard on Supernatural, like, ever. Uh, Like, he is not well. The whole Megatron exchange has such an air of annoyed little brother energy. But it takes what might otherwise be, like, a moment of Sam getting to poke Dean for his nerdy slip-ups and misses it because he's just in such a rough place. Like, he's literally being dragged back to a place that is such a negative energy to him. Uh, That being this hospital where he spent, you know, a few days locked up, literally on death's doorstep. Yeah, like, of course, this is troubling for him. And I'll get into, like, more of that when it comes to how he, like, sees Cass. Oh, my God. I so agree with that. Like, one of the reasons I think that he's not doing great and that he's feeling all of that is in part because he's back to that psych facility, right? With the whole Lucifer situation. And he was so close to dying. And then seeing Cass again in that place, like it, everything is just kind of coming back up, I assume. So like, luckily, he can actually have a conversation with Cass to like clear the air. And he also finds out that Cass doesn't see Lucifer anymore. And that he found that taking on that burden from Sam helped him to make penance for like the number of people and angels who have died because of his actions. And I think that that really lifts a weight off of Sam when he finds that out. I agree completely, but I think it almost takes the weight off and then replaces it with a worse one almost. Oh, okay. 
I think seeing Cass in this new, like, chill hippie era also might be getting to him. Like, Sam wasn't just locked up in a psych ward. He was being killed by an hallucination in his own mind. And Cass has taken this from him and is just, like, thriving suddenly. Mm. It feels like, you know, when you, like, you practice something, you do your best to get good at it, and then someone comes along, picks it up for the first time, and is just a billion times better than you at it? Like, it just, that, like, they were born natural, they, they surpass you immediately, and, like, you were just expecting to maybe, like, show them the way or, like, help them with the early steps where you struggled as well, but they're like, no, nah, I'm just good with this. In this case, the hobby in this case is living with Lucifer or whatever it might appear to be in Cass's head. Can you imagine the frustration of, like, worrying about someone because they took this from you and they're just like, oh, yeah, for me, it's nothing. I'm actually doing better because of it. Thanks. I mean, Cass is an angel. Yes. So I think that that's a big difference. Like, he can do a lot of things that humans can't do. Like, we know that. Like, I don't think Sam beats himself up because he can't, like, fly to different places. So I don't think that he should beat himself up for, like, Cass taking that on and, like, not reacting the same way. But also, like, I kind of disagree with your premise that Cass is thriving. I I don't think that he is. I think that he is having a really hard time and that this is a way for him to dissociate from all of that. He's like, if I only care about the bees, then I don't need to really think about all of that. We're looking at it through completely different lenses at this point. I think in this case, the lens I'm choosing to use is Sam's perception versus kind of the like the forest for the tree perception that we usually use. But I don't think Sam thinks that Cass is thriving. He says that he needs some Thorazine. Like, do you know what? Like, Thorazine is something that's used to treat, like, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Like, anything with, like, mania and ideas of grandeur, right? Like, so it's, it's like, I don't think that Sam thinks that Cass is thriving. Okay, with that context, it definitely changes a little bit. But I still, there's something about the way that Cass is, like, upbeat and not suffering that I think is still getting to Sam a little bit in the same way like he almost expected Sam, he expected Cass to react the same way he did. But where do you see that in the text? Like in the episode, where do you see Sam being annoyed with Cass? I think it is more to do with his, like the frustration, the same way we kind of talked about like being in the ward is kind of bringing back trauma. Mm-hmm. I think there is a level of him that at least had expectations set of Cass accepted my trauma and is suffering. Mm -hmm. And then to see him not necessarily suffering. I think thriving is the wrong word. I think that's just a positive attitude, even if it does seem to be on the verge of like schizophrenia or some kind of mania. I think there's a level of like, he expected to see Cass suffering the way he was, but Cass is able to beat it in a way that he couldn't. And yes, I know that we all know. And Sam knows he's an angel and things are different, but I think there is still some part of him deep down that just doesn't, sit right with this. I just don't see that in the text, but I see how that would be a very human emotion to feel. I also think that the second reason that Sam is not well in this episode is seeing Kevin. Like he he looks at this like straight A advanced placement student whose life is like thrown completely upside down because of a supernatural event. And I'm sure that it must remind him to some degree of like when he was at Stanford before Dean came to get him and Jess died. I didn't even consider this, honestly, but it makes so much sense that seeing this poor kid who can easily remind him of himself just a few years ago. Right. Wow. Like between everything that he's like been like shown this week in this episode. I mean, we have being back at the hospital, 
having to side with a demon again for the first time since he was betrayed by one. I feel like just seeing Cass and Cass trying to like, you know, like work things out with him. And the cherry on top of this like already shitty cake is just like seeing a version of himself that could have been unfortunately pulled back to the same world. Like, oh, Sam is just getting hit like every direction. Oh, yeah. Sam's not doing well. But Dean is not doing well either. (laughs) Go on. To be fair, I don't think anybody is doing really great in this episode, but like, you know, hence the theme. But for Dean, I feel like his sorrow is like much more focused and it's really on Cass. Because again, we were talking about Ben Edlund earlier. And the thing is, like the last time that Dean and Cass had a real conversation about anything, it was right at the end of The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, We talked about like in the special episode, like discussion panel, Dean and Cass just aren't really listening to each other when they're having this talk like so there's no resolution to it like they both take it really personally that the other just doesn't like blindly trust them and like they end up both leaving the interaction pretty upset and then after that like Cass dies and then Cass comes back but this is really like the first time that he and Dean actually get to talk and debrief about what happened at the time I truly feel like Dean is just like so upset by how his interactions are going with Cass Like, I can only imagine he expected to find him not in such a coherent state. There's this air he gives off where he seems to be, like, okay. Like, he's playing games, he's following bees. And I think this almost pisses Dean off a bit. And we see him explode at Cass when they have some alone time. But it has to suck to worry about someone and feel responsible for them. And we can clearly see... That anytime someone even mentions Cass around him, he goes like full on like dog seeing a squirrel. Again, I keep wanting to use the term okay or like positive things to describe Cass when clearly it's not. But he's a level of like lucid enough that he's not like, like in some state where they can't connect to him. You know, it has to hurt knowing that you've been worried sick about them this whole time and they're just kind of going on with their life, even if it is in a psych ward. I fully agree with that. I think that it's much more visible for Dean uh, in this moment. And like, there are also two things that Dean says in this episode that I would like us to kind of like read together for a moment. Like the first of the th- those things is like, the angels, they don't care. I think maybe they don't have the equipment to care. Seems like when they try, it just breaks them apart. And the second line is like, you're not sorry, you're playing sorry. Because, like, what's going on here for Dean? Like, personally, the way that I read those two lines and Dean's general behavior in this episode, he is still so hurt by what Cass did that it's easier for him to just tell himself that Cass doesn't care. Because, like, if he did, then why wouldn't he just say that he's sorry? And, like, we'll talk about Cass in a second, but I think that this really shows that they're still pretty out of step from one another. Like they're not on the same page and they're still having a lot of trouble finding common ground and communicating still from like literally a whole ass season ago. The issue here, and I think this is again a matter of perception, I think Dean is perceiving Cass as having moved past things and in a better place. Again, there's a million asterisks pouring off that word. And then Dean not understanding why he can't move on, which I think he kind of understands is because he isn't getting closure, and that it's Cass's fault that he's not getting that closure because Cass is basically choosing to ignore that thing ever happened and just move on. 
And Dean feels like Cass has moved on from the man who would be king and is just leaving it unspoken and moving forward. Doesn't that sound like anyone else on this freaking show? Mm-hmm. So double standards aside, it hurts him that Cass has effectively chosen to move past this in their relationship without him, essentially. Right. So if we can move on to Cass to be able to kind of like reply to that. Mm-hmm. Cass is dealing with the repercussions and the consequences of his own actions, right? Like they're chasing him down the psych ward uh, corridor and he's just having to, and he's trying to dodge them. He's following the bees instead, right? Like he, but at this point, like he has to face Sam and Dean and each of these things is like difficult in its own way. So we mentioned earlier that like he manages to clear the air with Sam and it seems to go fairly well for both of them, but that's not really that easy with Dean. Like Dean doesn't really think that Cass actually cares about Dean or about what he's done. But my question is, is that true? Does Cass really not care about what he has done? I think we're seeing Cass kind of pick up a human trait without really realizing he's doing it. Cass has this tendency to pick up human traits, mostly Deanisms, and kind of take them to like an nth degree where it's like a little too much. And I think this is him trying to kind of imitate Dean's like, I don't care attitude. He's acting very Dean-like in some ways here. Like I said before, he just sort of moves on. He's not considering how Dean feels, but rather just pushing past it to the okay part in air quotes. And kind of trying to pull Dean along. I think playing sorry is his way of being like, like metaphorically, I'm apologizing without saying it. But in reality, I want to get to a point where you and I can just hang out and be together again and not have to worry about the past without actually addressing it. You know, Dean, you know, wants to speak out about how he feels, which is an insane thing to be saying right now because Dean is the most pent up emotional person we know. But he truly has things to get off his chest not at Cass, but with Cass, and Cass is choosing not to let him have this because he's picking up the Deanism of just like, everything's fine because I said so and I'm all right. I think that this is also true, like, in in our, our daily lives, right? Like, when we think about the different ways that people try to repair relationships after something has happened, like, you've got the people who need to, absolutely need to talk about it. And it's also circumstantial, right? Because depending on the context... Like, we might act one way or another, but, like, there may be moments where, like, we absolutely need to talk about what happened in order to go back to a, a quote-unquote normal state. But then there's also, like, moments where you're just like, okay, let's just, like, do something. Let's just change our minds. Like, let's just, like, take our minds off of, like, this fight and, like, let's just do something together so that we can get back to a place where we can speak. Because at this moment, we cannot speak to one another. I don't want to throw the cassaway with the bathwater in this moment because like it it sort of feels like he's trying to engage Dean by playing sorry with him and that's kind of like his way of rebuilding the relationship even though that's not what Dean needs and like we're seeing that very very much that like they're not giving each other what they need in this moment which has been like a recurring theme for quite some time for these two these two characters but I do think that Cass cares. I think he cares very, very much. And I think he cares because Dean cares. Because we do see it in his actions. We see it in the way that he stays with them after leaving the psych facility. He could have just left 
right? He could have followed the bees, followed the root of the flowers, followed the plan, but he doesn't do that. He stays with them. We also see it in, like I said, the way that he tries to engage Dean with by playing sorry, which is a human game, right? To play with him, to like reflect on his experience while playing, which is like a very effective way to connect with another human being, right? Um, it's not what Dean needs at this moment, so Cass miscalculates, but it's still like a show of care. But we also see it at the very end when he gives them his blood, like Cass cares. I think he still does care, and the aloofness and passiveness of Cass and Dean's interaction, it almost feels like the like, I don't care, but, like, just in case, tell me anyways. Like, he's trying to do the Dean thing of, like, moving on and, like, getting past it and, like, being aloof. Sorry is the perfect metaphorical game because he literally can't bring himself to say it because he's trying not to be the one to say it because he doesn't want to drag up the past. But he needs to say it, so he's like, Mmm, look at the board game. Look at the title. Get the message, Dean, while trying not to be blunt and cast about it. If we can talk about Kevin, just like before we finish this uh, story time, I feel like, you know, he is just so full of pain and anxiety and regret over something lost, right? Like, which was our original definition. And in his case, it's, it's his normal life, right? Like the trajectory of his life has changed entirely by something that was completely out of his control. And like, in this case, this is a tragedy, even in the moments of lucidity when he's like on the phone with his girlfriend driving away and it's like he knows what he's doing is like hurting him, but he can't. It's like a compulsion. Uh, I also kind of find it interesting, like you brought it up earlier and now like I'm really driving it home, is that like Cass, as I've kind of said, from my view, is taking up these Deanisms. And Kevin is like this perfect parallel to Sam, a literal chosen one with no real say in the matter. And it seems like he's more compelled than called to action, which I think is a very interesting take on the Chosen One persona. He's voluntold. A hundred percent. There is something so weird about a library at night. It's already such a quiet place, but suddenly... The combination of low light and lack of people making you realize just how quiet it can be. Finding the books I need, I head over to an empty study room. I grab the one with the comfy chair, as there's no one else to compete with for the good seats. I curl up in said chair, open the book, and begin absorbing as much knowledge as I can. It's only once the silence is broken by what I have to hope was just a book falling off a shelf. Given no one is supposed to be here tonight besides me, I have to hope so at least. I keep letting my gaze rise from the pages to the window and to the sprawling shelves laid out before me, extending endlessly into shadows and nothing. I bolt upright as I think I see something move between the rows doors are locked, and I'm sure I'm alone. There shouldn't be anyone here. I glided quietly down the aisles, every corner a chance at encountering it. I was not prepared. Lastly, I heard a drawer closing in the distance. 
I know that old creaky drawer anywhere. I rush over to catch the intruder, realizing I have no plan once I do. I've never had this issue before. I wonder if they'll be okay meeting a ghost. So there's one line in this episode that always hits me right in the feels when I hear it. It's when um, Hester tells Dean, the very touch of you corrupts. When Castiel first laid a hand on you in hell, he was lost. And mind you, this is right after she tells Cass that he's fallen in every way imaginable. And for me as a queer person who is not that much younger than Sam and Dean, like it really speaks to my own fears about my queerness. And this fear that lived, and frankly, like to a certain degree, still lives in the social imagination that somehow queerness is contagious or transmissible. For me, it really speaks to like kissing girls as a teen and as a young adult and thinking that somehow I was corrupting them, like that it was wrong for me to enjoy kissing girls and that by doing this wrong thing with them, they were also becoming bad, like because of me. And obviously, like I know now that that's not the case. And I don't, I really didn't back then though. And the amount of pain and shame that like this created, like I'm still dealing with it today. And obviously, like I don't know what Ben Edlund's intention was when he wrote that line, but like in the context of Dean's queerness and his relationship with Cass, like that line is really inseparable from a queer reading. And a queer reading, which I can only imagine, speaks to a lot of queer folks around the world. I 100%, like, when that line came up, that's very much where my mind went as well, so I'm glad you brought this up. Thank you. This week, we have a message from Daya. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, what was your favorite subject in high school for our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala talk? Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hello, guys. My name is Daya, and I love your podcast so much. You're doing such amazing work, and I hope you keep it up, even when the show gets weirder. I wanted to talk about another show that was airing at the same time as Supernatural and how it compares to our favorite show about our denim-wrapped nightmares. Ghost Whisperer also premiered in 2005. In fact, it premiered a mere 10 days after Supernatural did. For anyone who doesn't know, Ghost Whisperer follows the life of Melinda Gordon, a woman with the ability to see and talk with earthbound spirits, or as we commonly call them, ghosts. Ghost Whisperer is a show that includes a lot of the same tropes as Supernatural, such as found family, free will, and destiny. It also includes the implications of angels and demons. My favorite examples being a villain from seasons one and two, implied to be a demon, and a being who looks after children with no one waiting for them in the light, who is implied to be an angel. Now, the most glaring difference between these two shows is how the main characters handle the supernatural world. Sam and Dean come at it from a combative point of view. This is not without reason, of course, but how often have Sam and Dean gone in guns blazing when they didn't need to? In comparison, Melinda approaches nearly every spirit she comes across with compassion, even when they cause her emotional or physical harm. Sam and Dean have been taught and must slowly unlearn that not everything not human 
must die. Melinda offers her physical and emotional health in service to a greater purpose and must learn how to enforce boundaries and protect herself. Obviously, neither of these are exactly healthy lifestyles, but I wonder how much of this was decided based on who the creators wanted to watch their shows. Ghost Whisperer was marketed to and popular with a female audience, so logically, Melinda would take a compassionate role and be a bit of a doormat at times. Logically, Sam and Dean would be warriors, even in a similar world, because the writers and creators wanted a male audience. The masculine versus feminine societal standards seem to have affected these shows so much, it feels like whiplash as a fan of both. Thank you for listening. I love your show a lot. Oh, and if this inspires anyone to go watch Ghost Whisperer, just be a prepared to cry, my friends. Be prepared to cry. Daya, I was literally going to say that, like, oh, my God, seeing as I've been watching, like, a lot of shows that aired at the same time as Supernatural, like, I'm going to go watch Ghost Whisperer. But now with you... <laughs> With your warning, I'm not too sure that I want to do that. But I think, like, honestly, I I knew that there was a show with Jennifer Love Hewitt where she talks to Ghost, but I had no idea that, like, Ghost Whisperer had lasted for five seasons and that it was airing right at the same time as Supernatural. So thank you very, very much for this for this information. And I completely agree with you that, like, the way that these characters approach and even just, like, you know, navigate the world or the supernatural, whether be it like supernatural or human wor or natural world, has a lot to do with who they want to attract. We've talked before about how supernatural didn't quite get the audience that it was aiming for. I mean, thank God it did because it's the fandom that kept them afloat for 15 seasons. So that's good for them, right? Even if they couldn't quite see it at the beginning. So thank you very much for this lovely analysis. I completely agree with that. And I, you know, I might, I might, I might go have a look at Ghost Whisperer, but now I'm scared. <laughs> it's like now on my radar of shows, which is amazing that it lasted five seasons and I've literally never heard of it until right now. Like Supernatural, it came out at a time where I was very much into these types of shows and seeing someone who was also very much into these types of shows and somehow neither of us picked it up. I feel like I have so much to watch. One, I'm still on my first and only viewing of X-Files, unlike someone <laughs> I don't know why you would feel the need to mention that. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> I still can't believe you're on a third. <laughs> I like what you pointed out here because it's something very interesting. And I feel like it comes up mostly in shows like this Monster of the Week format, whether it be a supernatural or a sci-fi, more sci-fi aliens in space thing. And it's the fact that because you're dealing with something that does not exist in our normal world in the same day-to-day -day way that like a crime show might handle situations, there is not a precedent set for how these things are handled, thus allowing you to build a world around it in whatever way you see fit, which lets you then break out into uh you could even go the comedy route with Supernatural. There was a, a really awful show called Reapers that came out maybe 15 years ago where it was like a comedy demon hunter, like Ghostbusters spoof thing. But like 
it dealt with situations like Supernatural does, but which is more of a comedic angle. But the things they were fighting were just equally supernatural demons. It wasn't like, oh, it's a poop demon, so it's funny because he's a poop demon. It's not it's a demon that's killing people. The heroes were just funny and silly and a little, like, goofy. So, again, you have this ability to write whatever type of character and world you want around these existing or made-up scenarios in a way that you can't with, like, more grounded reality. So it's interesting to see another show in a similar, the same time frame, taking a different approach to the same materials. I've been watching a lot of shows that have aired during that same era, like that, like, early 2000s, like, to about, like, 2010s kind of shows. And it's it's interesting because you're seeing a lot of, like, how they speak to one another. And you're seeing also, like, the values, the societal values, the societal fears that were happening at the time. It's really, really interesting to see how different people will approach this and how depending on who you're talking to, there are different approaches, different fears. And so it's not like, it's not sufficient to say, oh, people in 2010, like, it's like, well, there's more context than that. There's more nuance. Yeah, like if I could just pitch a really weird example of this that comes to mind, I've only seen the first season of the show. I know I need to go back and finish it. But it is a show called The Orville, which was very much being pitched as like, what if Star Trek, but funny? And it's like the entire team behind Family Guy writing it. Uh, the main character is McFarlane from Family Guy. But they essentially wrote it to be, yes, the crew is somewhat satirical characters, but the scenarios they're facing are like super, like, modern things. Like there's an episode where there's a race that's entirely male and one of them is found to be having a female child. So he turns to the doctor saying, can you please give my child a sex change when it's born? Because they'll be ostracized from society because our society shuns the rare one in a million female that is born on this planet. And it becomes an entire thing about like sexual identity and gender and like societal norms. And it's like this incredibly potent episode, but is punctuated by the comedy of the reason the father finally realized his child should be allowed to make her own choices and grow up as she wishes is by watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and seeing an outcast, like, you know, uh, find their own potential, even though they were different. Like, it takes a real comedy angle to a very serious subject and gives you this amazing, like, you know, other shows would take this and do a much more serious episode and they still get the same point while being a comedy. And I think it's amazing that we have the ability to write this kind of stuff. And I commend everyone who writes whatever they write because they can all take their own view on these different range of subjects. So while I might not be putting Ghost Whisper on my like next up list, it's definitely on my radar now. Given your propensity for watching shows faster than I do, I'll be curious for your review of your A3 watch in a week. <laughs> I'll let you know. So Drew, can you tell me a little bit about your reflection and call to action? So I feel slightly like a broken record, and I feel like um, just given the scenario of being currently without a job, mm. it's very top of mind, which I think is fair. I think I'm allowed to, you know, have that kind of like as the big, you know, thing looming over me. As I am finding myself with a lot of free time, there's a level of guilt associated with that of like, I shouldn't be having this free time when I'm like looking for a job, like I'm basically not providing the way I should be. And I look at Kevin, Kevin's schedule where he has a reminder set off 
to finish his lessons and then takes the call from his girlfriend and immediately you can see on his calendar there's like a 15 minute window of like free time before the next hour long block of something else. Like one, love a good spreadsheet, love a good schedule. Lord knows you do it much better than I do. Let me show you my agenda. (laughs) Between you and my wife, my calendar alerts are a sign of like what I don't do well. While I should have some structure and I should find things to do that help benefit me and move me towards my goals, I should not punish myself by taking away the free time and the things I enjoy. Like, I can still go out and play Magic on Fridays. I can still jump on some Destiny and play some games a little bit when I have my free time. But it's finding the balance between not getting out of bed until like 2 p.m. and then doing nothing all day versus getting up, being productive, having some level of structure to my days like Kevin but not to his extremes. Mm. And you, any reflections and calls to action for you this week? I think I want to take a page from Cass's book here and say that sometimes it's just best to like not dwell on the past and just watch the bees instead. Oh, I love that. Uh, You tell me to go watch the bees on like the biggest snowstorm of the year here. So it'll be a while before I see a bee again, but I'm looking forward to their return. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigourou, and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Daya for the message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on our wayward friends. Uh, Which basically meant that I could find any excuse I wanted to leave any class I wanted to go to the computer lab for technical reasons, which was mostly getting out of gym to go play Doom, I'll be very honest. I abuse my power very heavily there. Uh, my, my buddy That's Stu and I amazing. Uh, definitely, <laughs> you, you know oh Stu, God. but like, yeah, I know we definitely abused our power and like took that advantage of that.